I'm just extremely blessed to be here this morning, and what has happened so far in the service has been the the work of Almighty God. I I don't know how many children were up here on this platform this morning, but I would, as I've been blessed with these children this week, I would like them to know that it's very, very precious what their ears heard this morning and what their eyes saw. And I would like if none of them would ever forget it. See those flames taking that list of all the bad things that could have been on our list and see those flames dissolve the whole thing. And there's no way to measure from east to west. And so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. It's interesting to see what God does in a service. Brother Moses came up here with his Bible to James chapter 1. The very second verse he read had the title of our sermon in it for today. A group of young people stood here behind this microphone and quoted verses from 1 John chapter 3. Verses that we will hear later this morning. If the Lord tarries. It's just very, very interesting to see what God does in a service. Uh, the beautiful singing of the hymns this morning, I didn't want you to quit singing. It was a beautiful singing this morning. And the uh, meditations we've heard today already, so inspiring and so necessary. And uh, you've heard this morning the, uh, the burden of a heart with many years of experience. And I, I thank God for the uh, opportunity that I've had to to uh, get close enough to hear and participate with and share the burden of Brother Moses. Oh, thank you, Brother Leonard and the Congregation on Harmony for sponsoring these meetings. And we have tried, as you heard Brother Moses' words this morning, it, we have tried, Brother Leonard, in this meeting to, to not make this an emotional meeting. It's been our purpose in this meeting to bring us before the presence of, of one who is holy and worthy. And I don't know how to build churches better than to be in that presence. I don't know how to solve problems and heal marriages and deal with this, with the besetting issues in our life as to place all that before him. And we, we want to remain there. And, and that should not rapidly be blown away. That should not rapidly dissipate. That should not rapidly evaporate. That should remain with us. We trust that it will, brother. And uh, if we have another week in this tent, we, we could spend the whole next week then talking about our response to this God. And maybe one of the most important messages we could then bring next week would be the worship of this high God. And I would love to take you to Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5 where we have the best description of worship ever found any place in the Bible and find out there what the true Bible definition of worship really is. And that's one of the last commands that's given in the Bible. Worship God is one of the last commandments in the words of Holy Scripture. And so it would be a, a way to maintain forever in our lives what God is doing this, these days in our hearts. And it's, it's a, the most holy, the most beautiful, and the most right response that we can give to God. 
Uh, can we just bow our heads for a word of prayer? Well, thank you, dear Father, for the holy evidence we have seen of your work in this tent this week, but especially this morning. The way you've led these brothers and this chorus and this group of young people quoting scripture and this devotional meditation, the way you've led in the ushering and the car parking, the way you've led in this placement of this tent at such a critical location right here south of I-78 and right here off of 501. This beautiful family has offered this place for us and this tent and how it has gotten here and what all of you have done with it and the work that must be going on in heaven to make all this possible and the souls that you've prepared to be able to come here and the things you've needed to do so that we're all present here this morning. And we thank you that Suzanne is here. And we thank you that you are here. Would you bless this time this morning and receive glory to your name and you're worthy, O oh God. And may we honor the Lamb. And may his name be glorified because... We are here together in this way today. Humble us, O Father, before each other. Humble us, O God, before you. Humble us, O God, as we look in that mirror of your word. Humble us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I've heard over the years that there are those who feel that the deepest book of the Bible is is the book of Romans. I'm not going to say... Or give my opinion on that. It's just something I've heard. You probably have all heard that. There was a Sunday school class that I knew about. There was a meeting in the town of Marietta in this state of Pennsylvania that spent one whole year of their Sunday school year on one chapter of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. It took them a year to get through that chapter as they were studying in their class. It was the favorite book of Martin Luther. And it was upon hearing Luther's introduction to the book of Romans at Altar's Gate that John Wesley said his heart was strangely warmed. And from that date he marked his conversion. Many commentaries have been written on this letter of Paul. Just what is the theme, the purpose of this doctrinal book? And I don't want to scare you this morning with a lot of theology or heavy doctrine. I'll try not to do that today. But in order to get your attention and to bring you down to this, these 16 chapters in the book of Romans, I thought I would give you at least four different views that people have of this book. Four different things that different people would say is the main or fundamental teaching or purpose of the book of Romans. And you may be acquainted with all of these things. You may have heard all of them. I'm just going to try to, in summary form, put them together for you. A fundamentalist will say that it is Paul's defense of justification by faith, as opposed to works, or works of the law, or religious effort on the part of man, is justification by faith. And you would, some of you would recognize that that would have been Martin Luther's personal understanding of the book of Paul, and represents what major Protestantism would consider to be the book of Romans, its emphasis and teaching. An enthusiastic soul winner would look at Romans a little differently. He would contend that Romans provides the plan of salvation, a term that is only about 125 perhaps years old. That is not a phrase that's been used in the past. Our Anabaptist forefathers would not have known a word like that. 
They used the Roman road to guide a soul to salvation. They wrote verses picked out starting in the very beginning and going down through Romans, five special stopping places where they take a center on that journey to bring him to Christ. It's what they use, the book of Romans 4. Scholarship may decide that the theme of Romans is the preaching and defense of the gospel and would use that universally accepted text in Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read it just now, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, that would be considered by many people to be the theme verse in the book of Romans. And so it's a defense of the gospel. The evangel. Elebenhelio, like we would say in our language. Now, people from an Anabaptist background look at Romans a bit differently. And so I will, that's a very, very small segment of, Christ, of Christendom, but I will bring that in here. And they might contend that the emphasis of the book of Romans is obedient faith. This is a very, very interesting concept because there are, there are valid doctrinal and biblical reasons for thinking that about Romans. Faith and works, or faith that works. Faith that obeys and works. Faith that is active, alive, consistently responding to what God is saying. I'm going to give you some reasons why there are those who would feel that that is the main emphasis of Romans. First of all, the words obey, obedience, are found in Romans more than in any other book of the New Testament. And so certainly a thing that's as oft repeated as what obedience, obey, is in a book would certainly give some kind of indication as to its purpose and what it is saying. We have in chapter 1, as well as in chapter 16, an interesting phrase, the obedience of faith. That's a beautiful phrase in the book of Romans. That's a beautiful Bible phrase, the obedience of faith. And, And we can just pause there and say that any conformity to a right way, any conformity to a right way might look like obedience. It might look like a right response. It might look like the right thing to do. But 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 the the obedience that counts with God and the obedience that makes us what God wants us to be is the obedience that responds to faith. And so it's the obedience of faith that makes the decided difference between what we are and what the rest are who know not our God. The obedience of faith. And that is a beautiful phrase in this book. We have terms like this in the book of Romans. Obey from the heart. Obey the gospel. Obey the truth. Make the Gentiles obedient. It's amazing what the book of Romans says about obedience. And so those folk who understand that the book of Romans is talking about the obedience of faith or obedient faith or faith that is actually in life living out what the Bible says, there's a validity for that conclusion. But I'm going to take you one step further this morning, if I may. Though I appreciate all we've heard there. There's perhaps a more pervading theme that encompasses all those four emphases that I have already alluded to. Without excluding any of them. And maybe more in harmony with the purpose and teaching of the Pilgrim Church. And I have decided that on this morning I would bring a message that would be distinctly and decidedly from the Pilgrim Church perspective, the historic 
kingdom Christianity that our Lord Jesus taught and was upheld and defended by the martyrs and has come down to us by those who believed in a life that was conformed to the teaching of God's word. That's what I'm referring to when I refer to the purpose and teaching of the Pilgrim Church. I would understand that the theme of the book of Romans is, as we've heard several times already this morning, it is righteousness. And more specifically, the righteousness of God, which brings us right back to the theme we've had throughout this week. And so the title of this message, The Righteousness of God. I will give several reasons for this uh, for leading you to this observation. And would you go there again to chapter 1. I'd like to read again verse 16. And this time with it verse 17. Would you follow in your Bible. So when he's preaching the gospel. As he says he is in verse 15. What is he preaching? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone that believeth. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For therein is the righteousness of God. That's the first time that phrase is found in the book of Romans. The righteousness of God is revealed. How is the righteousness of God revealed? That should be a question in our minds. The righteousness of God is revealed. When the gospel of salvation is preached, when, when people believe what they have heard. Now, when I was a young preacher, someone told me that you should not wait very long in a sermon until you give the first practical application. So I'm going to give a practical application here. Many, many years ago, I was silenced from the ministry, and the elder, the bishop, who was standing in the pulpit before the congregation, explained the reasons why they felt that would be appropriate for the pastor of their church to no longer continue his responsibilities. He quoted a verse in Second Timothy chapter 2 and said, uh, the servant of the Lord should be patient, and we, we don't think that Brother Dale is very patient. And then he said, I've seen him patient sometimes, but he's not as patient as he should be. And we felt that that, that we should not continue to use him in this assembly. And I never forgotten that. I will never forget that. Now you wonder what's coming next. You now you wonder what we're going to say. Sometime after that, I don't know where I was, met met a person that I had known but hardly ever see him. We lived thousands of miles apart. He came to me and said, Brother Dale, one of the things that I've known you for and observed in your life over the years is the, uh, is the unusual amount of patience that you have in your life. And I had to make a decision. Are you listening? I had to make a decision. Which of those two things am I going to believe? Which of those two will I believe? And I did something I want you to hear. I want you to think about it this morning. I wanted to bless you. I chose to believe that if anyone ever in their lifetime saw patience in my life, that patience was, was possible in someone as difficult to work with as I was, and probably am. And that if it's possible to be patient, then I can be patient 
and I will be patient. And by faith, we can live in patience when all things all around us are tearing, tearing apart and blowing the, that hurricane wind that we heard about this morning. There's hurricane gales. Yes, I know about Mount Washington. We lived in Vermont. And New Hampshire is right there across the way. And Mount Washington right up there to the northeast. We can be patient. And because we know that God is righteous, we can be righteous. And because in any circumstance of life that we face, there is a right response to everything. And, and, and when we believe that God has given me, God, God has making available all that I need to be right, all I need to be holy, all I need to be a right testimony at this time, it's available to us. We believe it. And when we believe it, something very, very beautiful happens. What we believe, all of life comes into conformity with what we believe, and, and all the rest is denied, and, and, and then God infuses into us all of His own nature to make it possible for us to reveal the righteousness of God. From faith to faith. And we choose what we believe. You're standing in front of the mirror in the morning arranging your hair to come to the tent meeting. You, you become what you believe when you're standing in front of that mirror. You decide at that moment what you're going to do with that hair. You decide how to arrange it. You decide how to show it off. You decide how to accent it. You decide who you want to impress. You decide it. Or you decide something else. I'm a child of God. I am holy. I'm set apart for the glory of my Lord. There's only one that I impress. There's only one whose life, I, whose approval I ask for this morning. Dear God, is this hair all right? Dear God, is this veiling properly covering my head? Dear God, is it okay for me to present myself and present my Lord Jesus in this way as I step out of my room into the, into the public? Is it okay, Lord? That's the obedience of faith. So we see those two come together there. Righteousness. I'm going to give you several reasons why I understand this to be the main theme of Romans. I said that obedience appears in Romans more than any other book in the New Testament. Righteousness, in its various forms, appears in Romans something over 50 times. Obedience is in the book of Romans many times, but not nearly 50 times. No other New Testament writing comes close to anything like this, the use of the word righteousness. John uses it several times, very few times in comparison with this book. Righteousness is the goal and the fruit of our faith. Why do we have faith? Why do we believe? Why do we mix it with faith? Why are we doers of the work? Why do we choose to do it? Why do we want to express it? Why do we want to be faithful to it? That's what faith does. That's the purpose of faith. That's why God gives us the gift of faith. That's why faith is operating in our lives. The righteousness of God is a frequent theme in this book. We've already seen that. Let's go to chapter 3. Romans 3, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what should we say? 
Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. He speaks here of the righteousness of God. And when a, when a, when a person is unrighteous, when you see that contrast, you, all of a sudden the righteousness of God becomes blazingly white hot and very, very clear to notice in the presence of that wrong that is going on. I think the thief on the cross observed that. Here was the Lord Jesus Christ hanging in the middle of those three crosses. And down here was railing. And there was accusations. And there were strong comments. And there was sacrilegious and ungodly attitudes coming forth from that crowd. There was taunting and jeering. And there was a tremendous contrast between all of that and this Lamb of God who was bleeding and dying and forgiving and speaking words of peace and reconciliation on the cross. The great contrast to the righteousness of God. Verses 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have the righteousness of God here. Verse 26. To declare, I say, at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just, and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. There's a very, very beautiful verse back here in chapter 10. You might want to turn there. It's the third verse here. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. These are beautiful themes. Righteousness of faith. Righteousness which is by faith is a recurring theme in, the, in, in this book. May I take you on that little journey back up to chapter 3 again, verse 22. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. We had read that verse. Chapter 4, verse 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. His faith is counted for righteousness, the righteous which is by faith. Verse 11. And he received Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness may be imputed unto them also. Verse 13. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Chapter 9. Verse 30, what shall we say then, that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? Chapter 10, verse 6, but the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? This is a quote from the book of Deuteronomy. We had that lesson the other night. That is, to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. But this righteousness which is by faith has this holy response, this holy answer, this, this, holy, this holy response to God in verses 8 and 9. You, you know that by heart, you Bible students here. 
in Pennsylvania. Verse 10. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. Believing unto righteousness. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. We can keep on reading verses like that. It is the heart of God that we be righteous. Now I'm going to take you back to what we heard a while ago this morning in this tent. This time stopping first of all at 1 John chapter 2. Would you go there? 1 John 2. I'd like to read here. Verse 29. This is something that the Pilgrim Church believes, not all churches believe it. We have already heard that this morning. It was an outstanding introduction to what we're hearing right now. If you know that He is righteous, that is God. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of Him. Now, this is a rather crude illustration. I think it was a Monday night my son was here in this place. And there are people that look at him and that knew me and didn't know him and know me. And they say, well, I, I can tell whose son you are. And there are people that know him that do not know me. And they meet me and they say, I can easily see that you're Virgil's daddy. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that, is, that doeth righteousness is born of him. There's no other way to be righteous. Chapter 3, verse 7. Little children that no man deceive you. And, and James tells us that we can deceive ourselves. You, you heard that? Did you hear that this morning? Little children that no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. That's God. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. And you can fall. Suzanne fell three times. Those were very, very serious falls, the last one especially. But the first one was the most was the one that did the most damage, probably. And the other falls just finished off what it was started. But we can fall. But I'm going to tell you this about the last time she fell on concrete there, dark. No lights outside the building, meeting house, where we were there in Cave Long in Costa Rica. And a young man who's a member of that congregation was here in the tent last night. And she was lying there in that country. And people started gathering around. It was an embarrassing place to be. I want you to listen to what comes next. She said, Daddy, would you please help me to sit up? Help me to sit up. What am I telling you? A Christian can fall. Would someone please help me to sit up? Did you get it, Brother Leonard? Help me to sit up. She can sit up by herself. You can fall. But she doesn't, she doesn't go around in life practice falling. She doesn't practice falling. She practices standing. She practices walking. Right now she has to learn to walk like a baby all over again. You don't practice falling. 
Though we fall, take me by the hand and lift me up. Help me to get up. That's what we're reading here in these verses. His seed remains to him and he cannot keep on doing that. Because he's born of God. In this the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God. Neither he that loveth not his brother. So it serves as an illustration this morning. The Christian lives by the law of righteousness. You go back to Romans again to chapter 9. A Christian lives by that law. Verse 31. But Israel which followed after the law of righteousness hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling and stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed, or as it says in another place, shall not be confounded. And we could have read there verses 30 and following. What should we say then that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, they thought that this law was going to do it. And, and, and if that faith would have been mixed there, it would have done something different from what it did. Hath not attained to the law of righteousness. And the word law there is probably used in two ways. The, the, the phrase law of righteousness is found twice there. I'm not sure how deeply you want to go into that. But maybe in just a moment or two we'll understand that just a little bit better. Law of righteousness. Law of righteousness, as we have it here in this second phrase, is very similar to chapter 3, verse 27. Just look at that. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay. But by the law of faith. The law of faith and the law of righteousness, as it's used in the second expression, in chapter 9, verse 31. Very, very similar phrases, very similar meaning. The righteousness of God. Who can know the righteousness of God? Who can know that? Yet it has been revealed. We have that in our text, verse 17. The righteousness of God has been revealed from faith to faith, as it is written. The just shall live by faith. What is righteousness? Now we have to define a word here that is not easy to define. And those of you that are Bible students and you've heard a lot of preaching in your lifetime and you take seriously what the words of the Bible say, you've discovered in your Bible we have two words. We have the righteousness and we have the word holiness. And you might say to yourself, are they synonyms? Yes, they kind of are. Is there a difference between the two words? Yes, there, there's in a certain way there is. And what is the difference? Because in some verses in your Bible, the two words are used in the same verse. Righteousness and holiness. And one time it says, unto righteousness and true holiness. What is he talking about? What is righteousness? Well, the, the, we, we, we speak the English language. This word righteousness is, a, is an English word. It's not a Greek term, it's English. And the word in English was not always righteousness. If you would go way, way, way back, 
a little bit before the time, 1611, when this Bible was put together, an English-speaking person would have called that word right-wiseness. Right-wise. Meaning, that way or that manner which is right. How a righteous person is. Not merely of doing right, or doing a right thing, but being right. Though he is right-wise. He is right-natured. He has a right manner. He is a right person. And so that righteousness which comes out of it is right. Now two ladies can be, can be doing the same thing. Two men can do the same thing. You can sit in this church service and share a songbook with the person beside you. You can both be singing, Man of Sorrows. What a name for the Son of Man who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. And the two people are standing side by side, holding that same songbook and singing off the same page number. They both can be singing tenor. They both can be singing alto. There can be a lot of similarity. But something very, very different. They both are doing the right thing. It's the right thing to do, to sing that beautiful song. And one is worshipping. The other is not. One is worshipping. And one is altoing. Voicing. Pronouncing. Performing. Or whatever, whatever word you want to put in there. And they're both doing the right thing. It's not wrong to do the right thing. But righteousness speaks of the heart from which it comes, speaks of the life from which it comes, speaks of the matter from which it comes. And that indicates a relationship. That indicates there's a connection. That indicates that there's a source. We're connected to a source. Otherwise, it would not happen. And so that's the way a righteous person lives. A righteous person lives by faith. And that righteousness which results in his life is the righteousness of faith. And as a dear brother back in Tennessee said many years ago, who comes from a quite different background from most of us here this morning, he said, why? Faith is instant action. It's not just a matter of doing right, it's being right, or being just. It's a very, very difficult word to explain in our Spanish language because in Spanish, the word for justice, you know, the scales, the uh, lady justice, the, the lady there in the courthouse that has the blindfold over her eyes, and, she, and, the, and the scale is here, and she is balancing this thing perfectly justly without looking to see if it's he that is being advantaged or if it's he, and this thing is just there perfectly balanced, and there stands justice, being sure that the Deeds of life are duly rectified. That word justice in Spanish and the word righteousness is the same word. And so for that reason, it's very easy for a person in the Spanish language to think that if we're living righteously, if we have justicia, that means that it's eye for eye and tooth for tooth and what was deserved happened and what we merited we got. And since it was done to me, I'll do it to him. And that is not the righteousness of God. We don't see, that was not revealed in Calvary. That was not revealed in the life of Christ. That is not the righteousness which was revealed. 
So we have the word justice, which you also have your English language, and righteousness in Spanish is the same word. It's difficult for us to help them distinguish the difference. We work at it. We work at it. And as we study this theme of God this week, we can look at righteousness as an attribute of God. It does, it's not found anywhere else. An attribute of God, you find it nowhere else. You don't find it in Microsoft. You cannot find the attributes of God in the assembly line. You cannot find it in mass production. You cannot find the attributes of God anywhere except in God. And yet God has so designed His holy life and so created us, you and I, that we become participants of His holiness and we become participants of His righteousness. And that righteousness of God is revealed in us. This righteousness of God reveals to us His faithfulness, His truthfulness, His consistency, consistent with His nature, consistent with who He is, consistent with what He promised, consistent with what He does. It shows His attitude towards sin and marks His perfect holiness. And we, and we see, we see that righteous, righteousness of God there. And as was said in that funeral several years ago, in the business center in Ephrata, he loved righteousness and hated iniquity. That's from Hebrews. And that's the attitude that God has. He loves his righteousness and hates iniquity. And I want to say that you're not a holy person because you you uh, scoff at the ridiculous man. You scoff at the sinning person. You, 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 for you, it's repugnante what the sinner does. That's fine. But how can you have the attitude of God towards a sinner? He hates the sin. But he has that unique capacity, being righteous, to separate the sinner from the sin. And, and, and though what he did was wrong, and, and, and he did it wrong because he was wrong, Yet in that sinner, God sees something. And he wants to do something about it. And, 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 and what God does in do, changing that man from a sinner to a saint is the righteousness of God. It takes nothing away from his justice. It takes nothing away from his hatred of sin. It takes nothing away from his dealing with the wrongs of men. And I had a thought, Brother Eldon, this morning, as you so carefully, beautifully illustrated what God does to his sin with that flame of fire on that paper with those sins written on there. And I saw those children watching those flames devour that paper. They won't forget that. Praise the Lord that they'll never forget that. Live 50 years from now. Don't forget that fire devouring that. But their children and parents and all that are present here, what happens? If the holy fire of God does not deal with the sin, then what happens next? I was thinking about as, as I saw those flames. Then what happens next? And it's God's purpose to deal with those sins and save that sinner and make him the righteousness of God. And every time we see that, the righteousness of God is revealed. We heard anger this morning, talked about. We heard lust this morning, talked about. And then when God deals with that in my life, in your life, and, and he deals with that anger in our lives. What happens to that anger? Where did that anger go? Did anyone ever tell you? Listen, did anyone ever tell you there's absolutely no reason in life to ever be angry? Did anyone ever tell you that? 
I'm talking about carnal anger. I'm talking about selfish anger. That's what the Bible means when it talks about anger. Jesus looked upon them with anger. But he was not angry at them. He was not angry in defense of himself. He was not angry because he didn't get his own way. He was not angry because somebody had violated his person. It was not selfish anger. In the book of, in the Gospel of Mark. There's no reason to be angry. There's only one reason why we are angry. It's an ugly, ugly thing. We can be saved from it. We can be saved from it today and never do it again. Because the righteousness of God is revealed. And we must believe that. You do not need to be angry. There's another way to respond. No need for anger. You can correct the wrong in your children. You don't need to be angry about it. You can give them a holy correction without being angry about it. In fact, what good do you think it's going to do if we're angry? Because the Bible says, are you ready? Are you listening? The anger of man worketh not the righteousness of God. It's just so simple. Remember the last time I gave what you people here in Pennsylvania call paddling to our 11-year-old daughter. She's our oldest daughter. She's 46 years old now. I don't think I will need to do that again. She was 11 years old at the time. She was a very big girl for age. She was not quite as tall as I am, but she was a big girl for 11 years of age. If you look at her daughter, you'll know what I mean. And I took her off to a real little room by ourselves, and I figured out in my mind what I was going to do and how I was going to do it. And I think it was maybe a little more carefully done than some of the corrections I'd given to my children in the past, because I made mistakes along that line. And I thought through this thing and decided how it, was, how it felt it should be done, and, and now we're finished. And Bethany is crying. And when I was finished, she turned around and looked at me and threw her arms around my neck and squeezed me tight and said, Daddy, Daddy, I love you, Daddy, I love you, Daddy. You and I decide. You and I decide. We do that to God. I love you, God. I love you, Father. You let me, you have experienced this. You took care of this for me. You did it in this way. Yes, Father. I love you, Father. I love you, Father. Here it is, the righteousness of God revealed. Yes, it shows his attitude towards sin. Yes, it shows his perfect holiness. It's hard to distinguish between those two. I was thinking of taking you on that journey this morning. I don't think that I will. Let's look at Romans chapter 6. Would you like to go there? We have righteousness here five times in these few verses that I'm going to read. Let me read these verses and see if you can figure out what the word righteousness means and the way that it's used here in these verses, starting at verse 13, Romans 6. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, 
but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. What does that mean? For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. What then shall we sin, because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death, or of obedience unto righteousness. And that obedience is faith obedience. And that righteousness is the righteousness which is of faith. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Now, I'm not done reading yet, but let me pause. White apron. Wearing a white apron. A slave in the household. That word servant is slave. You become a slave to righteousness. It controls you. Righteousness is in charge of you. It's, it's a wonderful thing to be in slavery to. The righteousness of God. A servant of righteousness. We have that back in First Peter chapter 5. Be, be clothed with humility. And that, that in Greek is put on the white apron. Be a servant. Speaking to the elders. Speaking to the bishops. Be lowly. Be a servant. Be under. Use the white apron. Use the white apron to clean up the slops. Use the white apron to get a hold of the hot handle of the pan. Use the white apron to wipe the tears. Use the white apron. The slave in the house with the white apron. Oh, the, the servant will take care of it. And your servant righteousness. Isn't that amazing truth? Isn't that amazing concept? It comes from our Bibles. It's the person who knows God. But I'm not finished reading. Verse 19, But I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity, even, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then of those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. And you see that every time the word righteousness is used in these verses that I've read, it's there five times, it refers to the fruit of your life. What comes out in your daily experience. The way this faith in God, the way your response to Scripture, the way your attitude towards God is translated into a way of life that reflects who He is in this earth. It's your testimony. It's the lamp that has a fire in it. It's not a lamp of Five foolish virgins. It's a lamp that's got flames. It's a lamp that at midnight can, can, can be trimmed and lit. It's a lamp that men see. When they behold your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven for he is righteous. It's the way we live in this world. It shows a right relationship with God because we are like him. And evermore becoming like him. And maybe, maybe I should have reworded that. I, I suppose it's more correct to say we are ever and ever never becoming like Him. Maybe that's more correct to say than that we are exactly like Him. When we see Him, we should be like Him. We'll see Him as He is, then that'll be different. We're not there yet, but we're on that way. We are, you know, I came into my son's house there. We got there late on Saturday night. It was after 11 o'clock of last week, and so it was dark. 
But Sunday morning, I stood stood outside there and I always liked to be outside at their house. It's such a beautiful place where they live. And there was a vine growing there, two vine, you know, the trussels and the uh, the posts there. And the vines were growing. He had trimmed these things. They were down to almost nothing. He had these things down to just a bare wood. And within a week, this thing is verdant with life. Green. It's beautiful what happened in one week. And I want to show you those little grapes starting to form there on that cluster. They don't, doesn't happen this time of year. But you can take the smallest, hardest, darkest green little kernels you can find. They're growing at the end of that stem where the flower had been. That's me. Nobody would put it in a glass. No one would make juice out of it. No one would put it in a cobbler. But it's on, it's on the way. It's connected. It's at the right place. That pretty well explains me. I mean, I would beg God that that would be me. That would be I. It is one of his attributes that we are allowed to be participants of. We are made the righteousness of God in him. We can become all that God has intended for us to be. It's a beautiful thought. Righteousness is both a condition and an action. It's both a cause and an effect. It's both a root and a fruit. Righteousness is a way of being that produces a way of living. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, the young people quoted. And that is why we do that righteousness. Because righteousness is there. There's a righteous heart. What do we mean by the law of righteousness? Or the law of faith? I told you we'll look at that just briefly. What does that mean? Which works righteousness. This law of righteousness. That work in our lives. What is it doing? How does it function? We see that law in the experience of Abraham. Which is the theme of chapter 4 of Romans. It's a truth that's declared way back there in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for what? For righteousness. Now the law here is not a legislated commandment. It's, it's not a do thou, thou shalt do or thou shalt not do. The word law here is not one of the, one of the decalogue, one of the ten commandments. It's not a speed zone sign. It is a principle. It is a predictable outcome to pre-met conditions. The water freezes at 32 degrees. No one goes to water and says, Water, do you know you're getting colder? Water, do you know you must turn to ice? Water, do you know that uh, you, you do not remain water very long? You must be solid. They must be able to skate on top of you. Do you know that? Turn to ice. The water can't do it. But you produce the right conditions... Put that water to the right temperature and at 32 degrees Fahrenheit it will turn to ice. That's the way this law is. He that lives by faith. He that responds by faith to what God says. He that believes that the righteous which is of God I can be a servant to that in my own heart. And he chooses to do that. And is aware and very, very conscious of the devastating results when he does not do that. And has seen plenty of examples of his own failure in life that he does not want to return to where he was. That is a, a law of faith. It's a principle. Certain conditions always produce the same results. 
So the Bible says be righteous. The Bible says be holy. So I walk up to someone here. I don't know what your occupations are. Uh, then we have this young man here holding his Bible. He's looking at me. He wonders what I'm going to say next. And, and I don't know what he is in life or what his work is or what his interest is. But I say to him, be a mechanic. Take this 12-cylinder diesel engine apart and rebuild this engine. And he says, be a mechanic. And I says, I say, well, you don't have any tools. I'll give you tools. So I roll in here, a snap-on tool chest that's 26 feet long and 10 feet high. It's going to have a drawers in there and equipment. He can do anything he needs to do in all the world. And I hand that, I roll that over to him and say, be a mechanic. You know very well he's as lost as he was before. He's stumped. He can't do it. And why can't he do it? He's not a mechanic. Be righteous. You can try. He gets a wrench out. Takes a bolt loose. Make a mess. I don't think very many people in this tent would attempt to slice open someone's thigh up around the area of their hip and go in there and take the broken bones out that are in there and replace that with something else that goes down inside that femur and slides up into that pelvis. And then to put all those sinews back together and carefully work with all those nerves and bring this thing back out to the surface and say... Don't worry, young lady. The operation was a success. I believe you'll soon be well. And walking again. But someone studied, tried, learned, listened, received. Said, yes, I can do that. I will do that for you. And before the surgery, he just carefully explained how this is going to be. Now, this is what we're going to do. Will you be all right with that? You think that'll be okay? We come to Christ with our broken hips. We come to Christ with our broken lives. This is the people this morning. We come to Christ with the mess we're in. He said, this is what I will do to you. This is the way I'll take care of it. Are you okay with that? Then when we've experienced that, that great change, that healing, that forgiveness, that anointing, The blessing of God, that acceptance of him, his careful love, his patience with us, his mercy. Through all those years that we were going astray and rejected his word and paid no attention to his voice. We come to experience his presence and his love and his kindness. He looks at us and says, I just have one more thing that I would like you to know. What I have just done for you is now and forever so much a part of your life that you can go now and do likewise. Go now and do likewise. And we say, I'm a participant of his holiness. The Father loved and chastened and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. And we endure this chastening as sons and we become partakers of his holiness. And people see a change in their lives. And as the brother said this morning, he came home and his daddy said, you boys are different. The righteousness of God is revealed. 
We need to believe that. You say, I'm cruel to my children. You say, nothing I do turns out right. You say, I make a mess of it with my words. You say, my testimony is not very clear in my home. You say, I can't find a church for my family. Every place I go, I cause trouble. The, the preachers are scared to see me park my car outside the meeting house. I almost get driven from church to church. I don't know where to find a fellowship. Dear brother, dear struggling heart, the righteousness of God is revealed. And we can receive that into our hearts. You can be different this morning. It never needs to happen again. People can see that change in your life. These predictable results. Chapter 4 of Romans, verse 3 to 5. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, it was counted to him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is, is the, now to him that worketh is the reward, not reckoned by grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision and sealed the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised that he might be the father of all them that believe. Though they be not circumcised that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. Verse 17. As it is written I have made thee a father of many nations before whom him whom he believed even God who quickeneth the dead and called those things which be not as though they were who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead. When he was about a hundred years old, neither the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was also able also to perform. We see that. And at work in Abraham's life in many, many examples. This old man, sterile, his wife, dead in the womb. And God said, a father of many nations. And he had no reason to believe it, but God said it. We have no reason to believe that there's no need for anger when things are so turned upside down against us, but God said it. We have no reason to believe that we can smile and just be silent when someone is strongly accusing us of things that we understand or unjustly being said. But God said it. And God did it. And we believe that we can be that way, and we are. God said, offer up Isaac, in whom all, all this seed should be called. And Abraham expected, according to Hebrews 11, to see a resurrection here, something that no one had ever seen before. Yet God did something else, but he was faithful to what he knew to do. And, and though it made no sense, he did it. Contrary to all nature, values of our society. Defend yourself. Speak up for yourself. Make yourself great. Make yourself known. Make something of yourself. Fall on the ground and die. If you don't, you'll remain alone. But if you do that, you'll bring forth much fruit. Decide what you're going to do. Look what happened to those who believed in Jesus. Go and sin no more. Imagine that. I have been wicked all my life. They dragged me out here and brought me before this temple and they had these stones all around the street. 
And they wanted Jesus to give the command to do that. And he never told them not to. And the law said, Stoner! And Jesus did not abrogate that eternal law. He simply said, those of you that are capable and qualified to do it, you go ahead. And maybe the rest of you might as well leave. And nobody was left. And now he says to me, go and sin no more. And she believed it. I will go. And this thing is dealt with in my life. I'm different. I have never been treated like this before. No one has ever loved me like that before. No one has ever stood up for my defense before. No one has ever offered me the hand of righteousness before. I will be different from now on. Take up thy bed and walk. Go show thyself unto the priest. Go thy way. Thy faith has made thee whole. Your righteousness. Your righteousness. I have maybe just one more thing to say. What is the righteousness of God? How is the righteousness of God revealed? You know, the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is our righteousness. And that righteousness has been revealed. That true holiness has been revealed. We can be righteous. And do righteousness. Because we know we should be righteous. And we believe that we can be righteous. I can respond in a righteous way, a godly way, a holy way to the traffic jam. The car that pulls out in front of me makes me slam on my brakes. I can respond in righteous to my wife at the house, to the children. When they bring the report card home, I can have righteous words. When mistakes are made in the family, I can have righteous words. When the bills are bigger than the income, because he is righteous and he is my father. And I believe that God is a holy God. And right now in my life, I choose by faith to believe that what he asked me to be in Christ I am willing to be, and will be, and will not be satisfied until the life of Christ is manifest in this mortal flesh. This is the righteousness of God, revealed in those of us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. May God bless this holy assembly this morning.